The sad cast. That's what this is. Hey there. Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is October 13th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing okay. And from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Look at the number of hats Neil (laughs) has. For some reason, Neil's changed his perspective. Obviously, you can't see this, but he's got his hats behind him on a bookcase or something. And and it basically looks like he lives in a lids. Do, yeah, wait, I mean, it, you know, do you live in a Lids? I might, I might live in a Lids. Yeah, no, I, I have uh, one for every MLB team now, uh, which is a proud moment in my collection. But <laughs> also, the, it's on display. I've been, uh, I've been chased to a uh, to a different room in uh, our apartment, so I figured, uh, you know, may as well make that an interesting oh my, backdrop. Wait a minute, those are only your baseball hats. Where do you have all your like Georgia Tech hats and your <laughs> random ones? They're stacked under there. It's like it goes oh, deep, okay. man. It's okay. it's deep. Yeah, it's deep. But I tried to get the fi- you know, I've got the final four teams uh in there in in Major League Baseball and then um uh, three of the four teams that were eliminated, but I forgot the Marlins for whatever reason above them. But Neil, you're wearing a Cincinnati Reds hat today. I know, yeah. I, I'm wearing it in tribute to the great Joe Morgan, uh, Hall of Famer, who passed away this week and uh, famously, you know, kind of maligned by the sabermetric community uh, for his uh, career as a commentator, but really an amazing player uh, and probably still underrated as a player. And I don't know how much of that had to do with the the hate he got as a commentator, but I also think a little bit unfairly maligned as a commentator, no different than anybody else uh, from that era, you know, an ex player who, who they uh, put behind the mic. I don't think he was that bad uh, and, and certainly didn't deserve all of the, the hate that he got. So RIP Joe Morgan, um, really one of the greatest players, probably maybe the best second baseman of all time, certainly in the conversation uh, as a member of the big red machine. Better than uh, Jose Altuve. Yeah, Joe Morgan didn't throw the ball into the dirt every time and uh, uh, get hits because of trash can banging. We don't know uh, that for sure. We don't know that for sure. How terrible. This year has been terrible in terms of baseball deaths. It's crazy. I mean, just since August alone, Tom Seaver, Lou Brock, Bob Gibson, yeah, and Whitey Ford a few days ago, and now Joe Morgan. Yeah, yeah, it has to be the worst month for Hall of Famers in maybe any sport ever. I can't remember the like this many Hall of Famers dying in in like a month span. Yeah. Also this year, Al Kaline. Yeah. Don Larson. Crazy. That's terrible. So on that happy note. Yeah. No. Let's yeah, move on. So to- on this on this podcast, death roundup. All right, well, let's make um, our picks for uh, this week in our survivor pool. So again, um, Neil and I have three points. Jeff has two. We all won this week. Um, Jeff with the the Cowboys. Did you have the Rams, Neil? I think you had the Rams, I did have the Rams, yeah. They took care of our football team. Yeah. So the order will be Neil, Sarah, Jeff. So Neil, who you got, Neil? I'm on the clock. Uh, for the first pick in this week's draft, I'm going to take the Miami Dolphins yeah, against the New York Jets at home. <laughs> uh, the Dolphins, I think, 
uh, are despite being two and three, uh, I think, uh, in, in the wins and losses column, they're a lot better than that would indicate. They, I think, are one of the five best teams, according to expected point, like total expected points per game this year. They have a uh, positive point differential. Uh, I, as long as Fitzpatrick stays their starter, which may not be true throughout the whole season because Tua is, is uh, you know, waiting in the wings. But uh, as long as he, uh, Fitzmagic uh, does his thing, we can see that this team uh, is is not terrible. Uh, and, of course, they're playing the Jets and the Jets. I don't know if Darnold is going to start. I don't know if Flacco is going to start. I don't know. I, I don't think it matters. Um, yeah, no, uh, I, picking I enjoy- the Jets is a good Right. I enjoy that you've like um, waxed poetic about the Dolphins here and like extolling their virtues, but really they're playing the Jets. It's so mainly like, about the, the Jets. Yeah. yeah. Nope. That's a good pick. This week it was super hard. There are a lot of good teams playing each other and bad teams playing each other. And I found it really hard to pick. Um, but I'm going to take the Indianapolis Colts over the Cincinnati Bengals. I actually really like the Bengals. So I'm like slightly nervous about this, but by the line, it's like probably the best one left all right so who you got jeff i'm gonna take a little team see this is tricky because i don't know if cam newton's playing but i'm gonna take the new england patriots oh i thought you were gonna go in a different direction and take the vikings you were gonna take the vikings too (laughs) good on you jeff uh no i'm not gonna take the vikings i I don't want to take a team i was a little early on my predicting dan quinn fired i missed it by a week but I, I don't like taking a team right after they fire a coach. Going against a team right after they fire their coach. I mean, look at Houston in in with the cloud of Bill O'Brien gone, just immediately wins, and they're going forward on fourth and one, shockingly, um, because Bill O'Brien's not there to uh, call in the. Uh, Cardell's like it's a whole new era. No, <laughs> we're not. We're not. Sit, sit down, kickers. Um, <laughs> but the Patriots, uh, Denver just looked. In that game, looked. I know they beat the Jets, but they somehow also looked just as bad. So this is a fade against uh, Denver. No, I think that's smart. My only question is, what do we do if a team doesn't play? Do we have a any? We have an emergency pick. We have an emergency Slack comment, and I think the (laughs) comment (laughs) all Slack comments are emergencies, and. Uh, they got a new pick. I think that's okay. only fair, right? And and for those listening at home, ours is a little different. We we can't pick the same as the other people we're competing right. against. Right, right, right. Yeah, okay. That, that that feels fair to me. All right. On today's show, we'll look back at the NBA Finals, talk about what the Lakers win means for LeBron's legacy, and answer our favorite question, who is the GOAT? Then we'll move over to the MLB postseason, where the championship series are underway. We'll talk about how likely our model thinks it is that the Astros will weasel their way into the World Series and what it would mean for baseball if they did. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The NBA Finals ended on Sunday with a dominant 106-96 Game 6 victory by the Los Angeles Lakers over the Miami Heat. LeBron James finished the night with a triple-double, 28 points, 14 rebounds and 10 assists and became the second player in NBA history to win at least four finals MVP awards. The only other player who has done that is of course, Michael Jordan. LeBron is however, the only player in NBA history to have led three different teams to championships in his career. 
On the rematch podcast, Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban argued that right now, LeBron is the best he's ever been. He's got the basketball IQ level now. He's just take, he's, he's a basketball savant, mm. right? I mean, the way he sees and reads what's going on on the court in real time and is three steps ahead is incredible. And that's what makes him, in addition to his, his athleticism, that's really what makes him special. Mm. And so he didn't have that. Like, we would run a zone against him, and he would hesitate and not be sure what to do. Right. He's not going to hesitate now, right. right? He knows exactly what's coming and what to do and anticipates – you know, he can talk to you about a basketball game and every single play that mm-hmm. that's happened. Mm-hmm. Like some of us might talk about a book we just read. Right. You know, right. and that, that those two things are enormous differences. And, you know, he can he can now beat you in so many different ways. He's still athletic enough. Um, he's still, you know, his, his skill set has improved, his, his passing. But those all tie back to his basketball IQ. And that's something that wasn't as developed then as it is now. All right. Let's start with LeBron's numbers. Cuban's basketball IQ comment is a little unquantifiable, but do we see evidence of that in LeBron's numbers, Neil? Yeah, I I think we do see that. So if you're looking at just something like Raptor, which is our favorite uh, stat of choice, this was not the number one best postseason of LeBron's career. It was one of the best. Uh, It's still hard to top, ironically, that 2009 playoff run when they actually lost to the Magic in the conference finals, but LeBron had a plus 16.1 Raptor uh, in that run. That is still one of the best playoff runs anyone's ever had by the advanced metrics. However, if you just look at the well-roundedness of LeBron's game in these playoffs, so this was the first postseason that he ever had a true shooting percentage better than 60%, an assist rate better than 40%, and a rebound percentage better than 15% in the same playoffs. And I think that speaks to the the, the gaps that he was filling for that team, the, the role that he was playing where he was just basically doing like everything. He was there, their, you know call the plumber in the middle of the night to fix your drain, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> fix, fix whatever appliance in your house. I mean, he was just doing everything and, and uh, always sort of making the right play. And I think that that is interesting about LeBron is that in the past, and we even saw that come up a little bit in game five, when he passed out of the like triple team that was, that was collapsing on him uh, as he was going to the basket and he hit Danny green wide open three green misses the three and the heat win. And that was kind of a microcosm of what LeBron has been uh, criticized for in the past, which is like passing in a situation in which theoretically Kobe or Jordan or someone like that was just always going to take the shot, which I always think is kind of a bogus argument anyway, because we saw LeBron, uh, we saw Jordan pass it off to John Paxson and Steve Kerr in various situations and they hit the shot uh, and, and they, uh, Jordan got the assist. But the idea is that like, Oh, it's this hero ball moment and instead he passes it off. But that's been the story of LeBron's career. He, he makes the right decision. And that gets into the basketball IQ. Like it was the right play to hit Danny Green, who was wide open, one of the best three-point shooters of all time. He just happened to miss. And LeBron afterward, uh, when he was asked about it, he was like, look, we'll live with that. That's the type of shot that we want in that situation. And I think that that is telling about LeBron is that he always tends to make the right play, even if it's not like the ego-boosting hero ball play under those circumstances. The the comparison to Jordan's passing to Kerr or Paxson is, is, I think, was very funny to me after that game when people were, you know, so mad at, at LeBron and obviously also mad at Danny Green. 
Which the, the, was gross. Yeah, it really it was. Also, it was pretty it was pretty obvious they were going to win game six. I mean, I kind of saw go, uh, like going in after they lose that that game five. I was like, they're going to blow them out in game six. And they were winning by like 30 at halftime. And like to miss a three like you're a, most people, the best three point shooters are like, what, 40 percent ish so that yeah. you miss more than maybe a little higher time. if it's open, you know, like sure, that. But yeah. Sure, yeah. But but that's the thing with the Jordan passes. Those shots were made, right? It's a totally different conversation if the shots weren't made. Um, yeah. And people always forget that. But you make the pass, you know, not knowing if the shot's going to go in. Um, yeah, it's still so they, they compare it. They skip over that and compare it to this shot he took against, I guess it was to win his last uh, ring against the Jazz. You know, so it's like... But also, it's like that they're different players. That this is LeBron's game, and this is part of the reason this argument is so frustrating and ultimately stupid. But let's let's keep feeding, <laughs> let's keep feeding the monster. Um, just, that's, that was what Jordan did. Yeah. So, in terms of LeBron, Jeff, how much credit should we be giving him versus Anthony Davis in for this team for this win? Well. Let's look at what happened last year. They didn't make the playoffs. And then they get Anthony Davis and they win a title. So I, I think it's pretty significant, Anthony. I mean, he I, I don't think it happens without Anthony Davis. He he couldn't couldn't have done it alone. I think at this age and the amount of wear and tear and the ridiculous amount of playoff games he's played, um, he needs someone to take take the load off and, and, and share the offensive burden. And it's an essential ingredient. It, it allowed LeBron to, to do what he does and to lead the team to the title. So it, it was essential. Yeah. And that's borne out in the numbers too. Like uh, looking at Raptor wins above replacement, Anthony Davis led the Lakers during the playoffs, 6.2 to 5.2. And he had the higher per possession rating too, which I think checks out. I mean, when you watch those games, it was a real partnership between the two of them. LeBron even said that after um, after winning the championship, they they asked him about Anthony Davis as like this wingman, and he was like, "No, this is like a partnership," you know. Uh, and and Davis always seemed to be there when they needed like a big shot, when they needed a defensive stop. Uh, he 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 was there. So I think you're totally right, Jeff. They they don't win the championship without Davis, and Davis is probably the best teammate. LeBron has ever had like especially playing at this level the way he did in the playoffs I don't know that any of LeBron's other previous teammates apologies to Kyrie and even to Wade and Bosch I don't think any of them played at this level uh in a playoff run a finals run uh as as Anthony Davis did in these playoffs and I think I think that there there are some LeBron detractors who will say having Anthony Davis diminishes his accomplishment this year because Jordan did it by himself, which is of course completely not true. Yeah. That's not true at all. (laughs) Right. Um, And, and I think when you, when you look back over LeBron's career at different stops, you know, in Cleveland, in his last stint in Cleveland, he was alone a lot of the time shouldering that load when Kevin Love got hurt after Kyrie left, like they didn't, he didn't have anyone else to, to rely on. And he still got them to the finals. He just couldn't beat the Warriors, who had a you know two and then three great players on that team. Yeah, that that said, if he had won the title in in twenty fifteen, when it was really just pure LeBron one man army, his love and 
Irving were were out for the finals. Um, I, I think Irving got hurt in, in game one, and, and well, this is the majority, the really the entirety of the finals. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, this conversation's probably a little different. I think we changed the goalpost. I think this is just all part of how we move the goalposts around for the LeBron versus Jordan or whomever debate uh, to the point that it's like, when will it be enough to consider LeBron the best of all time? You know, and I've been on record saying that Jordan is still the best of all time (laughs) on the basis of the numbers and, and kind of comparing them on their, their whole career and trying to distill their skills into metrics uh and it's very close well but i i wouldn't base it all on finals records against wildly different levels of competition different eras all of this i i think the ring counting is still a problem in the nba i i do think this was lebron's and i'm doing air quotes easiest title um meaning you know i think it's the first one against the thunder i mean first of all that thunder team on hindsight was ridiculously loaded with, you know, Harden there and, and Westbrook and, and Durant. Um, that was a, an easier series. I think that, you know, was five games, but that they, but Miami had to have that really tough series against Boston in the Eastern conference finals and that one. So in some ways I think he, LeBron, it, it was almost never in doubt. It, it, it feels like, so I think it was kind of, the smoothie, but that's also a hallmark of, of that's also a hallmark of a, a great player and a great team is you know what you know I think Jordan had certainly had his you know one championship where they just marched through the competition and it, it's it's never in doubt. And the Lakers almost went undefeated in the 2001 playoffs, and we look at that as being like, oh, what a commanding run, but they didn't really have to go through you know, any more difficult of a set of opponents, they probably went through an easier one than the Lakers did this year. I will also say, I think, I think it's a lot easier to say in hindsight how easy this was for the Lakers, but like we all thought that Portland was going to be a, a, like the, a tricky matchup for them in the first round. And it, I mean, they were playing game one. Yeah. And Portland was playing. So, I mean, Dame was playing so well. I mean, they were, they were, they were hot going into that. And then in the second round, they played, James Harden and Houston. I mean, that that wasn't a gimme by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, our model certainly has always liked Houston and loves Harden. And then Denver was, I think it was, in hindsight, we look at that series and think, eh, it was the Nuggets. But the Nuggets were playing really well and were very resilient and had come back and back and back. I mean, those weren't just like automatic wins for them even though now we will think of them as being automatic wins for them which is a little unfair like they would have taken a lot of heat if they had lost and they didn't and then they still don't get credit for it and it's sort of like what are we doing why don't we why don't we want to give lebron credit i don't understand yeah it is a little strange i mean he's up there talking about respect and finally getting respect and i'm just like who it who doesn't respect you? I mean, it's like, like, what are we talking about? Even like, is it is this how trolly of a culture we've become? Where... <laughs> yes, I think the answer to that is... <laughs> yeah, and the answer to that is yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I wonder how much of it is residual leftover from the decision, which I feel like has sort of 
not it doesn't dog him as much anymore but i do feel like there's a subset of of people and maybe they're jordan fans uh, at the same time but they're old school basketball fans that are just never going to accept the fact that he has changed teams so many times he's kind of ushered in this era of other players changing teams uh and the fact that he won finals mvp for three different teams which has never been done before that I think is such a unique accomplishment and, and it can be spun as maybe the tiebreaker that puts him over Jordan. I saw people using that. Uh, and I think that that could be a legitimate argument. It, it's a great compelling stat. And if you're on the LeBron is not the goat side, you can kind of write it off. Yeah. yeah no, I, I think you're right. Like certainly having consistency in coaching and teammates like Jordan has that helps rather than completely blowing everything up and starting over of a new environment and new teammates and a new coach and all that. But then, you know, it's two sides to that, that he jumped from super team to super team. So it's probably just washes out in the end. Yeah. I I think basketball fans, sports fans in general want to have this like romantic notion of a, of a player and a team being, you know, synonymous and, and, you know, dedicating your life to playing for this one team. We don't do that in real life. Like if someone stays in the same job for their entire career, we're like, what, why did you do that? Like, like you have to, we understand that you usually have to change jobs to like get a promotion or, or make more money or whatever. But we don't like allow that for our athletes right now in our like romantic notions of that. And then the one time it really does happen in modern sports, which is the Brady and Belichick thing, we get caught in these chicken and egg arguments on Ooh, who is it? Is it Brady lifting a belly? And so there's really no <laughs> way to win. There's, no, I think that's, yeah, I think that's, that's the real, um, that's the real answer. There's no winning. Guys, well, are, we, are we saying sports arguments are dumb? <laughs> oh no. It's our entire reason for being, what are we doing? Well, our reason um, for being is technically to take them down. So I think we're good. on solid ground still. Okay. Thank goodness. But I think now we can look at like the, uh, you know, you look at the first era of the Cavs with LeBron, like the end of that, then the heat, then the Cavs part two. And then now the Lakers almost like that is one franchise. That is like the LeBron continuation, you know, continuity yeah. uh, of a franchise in the way that we would have looked at like, Oh, the bulls with Jordan and Pippen and whatever. Uh, I mean, he's even had some of the same teammate, like J.R. Smith keeps popping up, you know, uh, these guys that keep kind of resurfacing because they can play with LeBron or, you know, they've been proven to kind of fill a role that he often needs filled on the cheap often. Uh, and so I think that we used to have teams and they had their star and, and it was about whether Reggie Miller's Pacers could beat Michael Jordan's Bulls and, and that battle waged year after year after year. Now we really do have to think of it as through like a player-based lens where it's like, we don't care where LeBron is playing, but can LeBron's team beat whatever team Kevin Durant is on or whatever team, you know, uh, Jimmy Butler now, I guess, you know, would be another comparison. Giannis, someone like that. Yeah. I mean, that's why the dream team, people who weren't around for that was so exciting because we were like, these guys are all going to play together and it's going to be a real competition. It's not an all-star game. We've never seen these guys play together. And now we get to watch them beat Angola by 80 points. Um, (laughs) But now with dream teams, it's just like, you know, Okay, that's the Clippers. This Tuesday, year. yeah, exactly. 
Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, you want to see if, if the dream team was that like super, we want to see all these guys team up together. Then that really does make sense. Why we want to see guys team up together now. I mean, these, these current dream teams getting to see LeBron and Anthony Davis on the same team is really cool for someone who grew up with before, before the dream team, I think. Um, but I do like the point about this is, these are player franchises more than team franchises for someone who doesn't have an, an NBA team and does just follow players. It's totally fine with me. If you were always a fan of the, you know, Utah jazz, then this is probably not your favorite era of basketball. Well, I'm sure all the Laker fans celebrating this this week were just long lifelong, yes, long time always, Laker fans. Right? They've always been, been fans. Yeah, that is. I mean, Los Angeles fans in general are notorious, notoriously steadfast. So that does make. How sense. dare you <laughs> with that sarcasm? No, mm-hmm. you're probably right. We should probably just leave that there before we get an entire city angry at us. Mad at us today? Yeah. All right, well, let's end this discussion here for now. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll be back to talk about baseball. We're deep into the postseason in baseball now, as both the NL and AL have begun their championship series. In Monday night's first game of the NLCS, the Braves beat the Dodgers 5-1 to with some ninth-inning heroics from Austin Riley, Marcelo Zuna, and Ozzie Albies. And in the ALCS, the Tampa Bay Rays are up two games to nothing over the Houston Astros. According to our model, the Dodgers are still the favorite to win the World Series at 41%. The Rays are in second at 33%, the Braves at 20%, and the squeaky clean, non-problematic, lovable Astros bringing up the rear with a 7% chance. (laughs) But on ESPN's first take last week, Jeff Passan talked about the potential upside, at least for neutral fans, of the Astros making it to the World Series. It's just the ultimate in drama. It's like NBA style drama right there. You have hatred, you have teams that despise one another, teams that in baseball, you never saw players come out and talk about other players. In spring training, all they were doing was talking about the Astros and how badly they cheated. And, and yet you have to give the Astros credit. What they've done after a bad season, frankly, a sub 500 season, after losing Garrett Cole to free agency, after losing Justin Verlander to Tommy John surgery, Jordan Alvarez, maybe their best hitter out for the season. You know, the Astros, I don't think want to be the villains. What I do think is that they want to show everyone that they're actually good baseball players without banging on a trash can. So do we have to give the Astros any credit? Neil, what do you think accounts for them suddenly coming alive in the postseason? Well, we, you know, we were kind of out of step with some of the other predictors throughout most of the regular season when we still had the Astros rated as one of the best teams in baseball and had like a, you know, surprisingly high World Series chance, given that they had a sub 500 regular season record. (laughs) Uh, But I think that, you know, not that one a sample of one team is evidence of of any trend, but I do think that it speaks to the fact that 60 games, we said it going into the season, is like not that much for a baseball team. Any team can look either way better than they actually are or way worse than they actually are in any 60 game stretch. We found that Cubs team that, (laughs) you know, looked like one of the best teams in baseball history over a 60 game stretch and was like way below 500 in every other game that didn't constitute that. So uh, I think there's a little bit of that here where the Astros were 
on paper at least barring whether we think that they were using buzzers or whatever last season, which we should say the, the report that the commissioner did, I know whatever said that they really had been limited uh, to, to the, you know, sign stealing in 2017 and parts of 2018. And then in 2019, they could find no evidence of buzzers. I know there was a lot of rumors around them still doing things. um, And it's a nice narrative to look at Jose Altuve's batting average in 2020 compared with 2019 and come to a conclusion off of that. But I do think that it's probably more likely that they're a really talented team that maybe felt a lot of pressure and a lot of, you know, like they had a lot to prove and maybe were pressing. Uh, And you saw that in some of the stats where their walk rate went down a lot. They were still the best team at avoiding strikeouts, uh, but they, I think they were being less patient at the plate and maybe trying too hard to, to kind of silence the doubters. If we, uh, if we ascribe anything aside from noise to those numbers, you know, we talked about this in the off season that if they were like, they were, this was a no win situation for them because if they were worse because they were, had been cheating, then, you know, (laughs) their worseness would be evidence of that. If they were worse because they didn't want to get hit by pitchers or they, you know, didn't want to get booed in spring training or whatever, then they, we weren't going to be able to tell the difference between being worse because of pressing, because of trying too hard, because of trying to prove that they weren't cheaters and the absence of cheating. So like that was never going to be a great situation for them. And maybe that's fine. Yeah. Baseball purgatory where you never really know, you know, what happens. But with the, the craziest thing when it comes to the you know threat of being thrown at is they had the seventh fewest hit by pitch uh, <laughs> of any team in baseball this season. After all the talk that they might break the all time record or, you know, prorated up to uh, 162 games, break the record. They only got hit by 23 uh, pitches this season, which is the same as the Atlanta Braves uh, and uh, well below the league average, which was 27. Did a lot of people just happen to throw behind them like Sean? Maybe they missed them. You know, we're not measuring intent here. Yeah. Yeah. I actually think it's more. I I think, Neil, it really I I agree with you that I do think this is why the baseball season is that long. Um, because it does take you do see prolonged slumps and and Altuve and Bregman were basically in slump. I mean Bregman's still kind of in a slump we're in slumps the entire small season that we had so yes eventually they're going to start hitting and it happens to be right now in the playoffs when it's most important um, <laughs> but they're good hitters that's what they do right, um, yeah. in terms of their legacy stuff I don't actually think I don't really think this is – I think the on-field impact of the cheating scandal is is, is overvalued. Um, and, and, Neil, you've written about this, and a lot of people have studied this. I, I don't really know how much it helped them. There's certainly not a lot of statistical evidence that it helped them a ton. I think this is more about integrity stuff and, and, and just losing the respect for doing something so systematic and, and – and, you know, having such disregard for, for, you know, rules, you know, it, 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 it's like the kind of thing when you, I try to teach my daughter this when we're playing Monopoly, that you shouldn't cheat. uh, Because when you do win, normally, it's not going to feel as good. um, Because of past wins where you cheated. Um, 
you got to lose a lot and then win and and earn it and then it feels good um because because that's what you know I, I think it's really just a matter of losing respect like i there's no redemption for me like i i don't want to see this team win they've already won and they really weren't punished the players weren't so it, i don't care what they do this year um in terms of like that's never going to change my opinion of them i know sarah you probably think otherwise because you don't mind the cheating scandal so i'll let you <laughs> I put it this way. I never thought the Astros won because they were banging on a trash right. and, and, and laid off a curveball in an O2 count to get it to a one, two count. And then you look, I think it probably helped them a little bit in certain situations, but I have not seen enough evidence to say that's why they won. They won because they were a great, great storyline of an amazing team building that went from an absolute worst team in baseball for numerous years and then collecting with not a great and then collecting all this talent and putting together an amazing roster. That's why they won. Yeah. Um, so they basically what the saddest thing in this all is that they ruined what otherwise should be a, a great baseball storyline. Well, I fully agree with that. I mean, you guys know how I feel about the cheating scandal. I don't care about it. And and I. It's funny now I'm rooting against the Astros in this series against with, with the Rays, not because they're cheaters and don't deserve to go to the world series. I'm mad at them for taking my team out of the postseason. I, I don't care at all about the cheating. I'm just angry at that two game sweep when really I should just be mad at the twins. You know, it's not the Astros fault that they were substantially better. Um, and I think, so for me, this season is like confirmation that they are good. And that the cheating didn't matter as much because they are good. They're good players. And that's, you know, maybe they, they didn't probably need to cheat, <laughs> frankly, to have gone to the World Series before to be, um, to win the World Series. They, they are good players and they were a good team. And again, I respect the hustle of these are rules in baseball that are not really rules. And so you work around that and coming up with a system I feel like that's the like the problem that they had a, a system in place. Man, I love systems. Like, give me more process. Like, like that's just efficiency right there. I appreciate that as an organization. I'm an editor, so I like um I like a process. Um, but this is the problem with baseball. The 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 rules, the integrity is all nonsense. It's all made up. No, but I, I've always I've always partially agreed with you on this debate. I mean, I, I despite what I you know just said. Um, no, but I, I do agree that the, the unspoken, this sort of nebulous gray area of you can steal signs sometimes, but you can't steal them with a trash can. You can only steal them with your eye. It's like, what? Um, it is, it is kind of dumb, but there was something, you know, reading more about it, just kind of icky and gross about the, the systemic nature of it and, the fact that it just ran through the whole organization and ultimately for, for what gain, I, I don't think it would have helped them that much. And, and also let's not forget, there were some other kind of gross storylines surrounding this team. For sure. Uh, for sure. And yeah. And, and that things. absolutely. And those are the things that I actually feel like the Astros should be villains for, um, you know, how they, how they treated players, them not caring about, you know, go ahead and, and acquiring a domestic abuser because he was, you know, a, a cheaper option for them. Like that kind of stuff is the kind of stuff that I hold against them. 
Well, all right. So the last time we discussed the MLB playoffs, we talked about how the format change might affect teams' pitching strategies and the extra importance of having a deep bench. Jeff, have you, have any of the four remaining teams surprised you and how they made it here? Well, I I could have predicted before the playoffs started that the Rays were going to get walk-off home runs and key hits from players I've literally never heard of, um, which came true. So that works. I will say the thing that's probably most surprising, honestly, is the Braves how the Braves are doing it. Obviously we saw that um, incredible offense at work in the the ninth inning last night. Um, But this team has really been, I mean, it's been a a team that I think I said before the playoffs had really bad pitching and we're going to have to mash teams in every game, but they're doing it with amazing pitching. And, (laughs) you know, when Mike Soroka got hurt earlier in the year, I, I really thought that was, you know, a huge blow to their title chances because, losing their ace on an already kind of thin rotation, but getting these performances from Ian Anderson, Kyle Wright, um, really unheralded guys. I saw somewhere that they have as many shutouts in the postseason as they had in the entire regular season. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> remarkable. Um, and we all, we know that offense is there with Freeman and um, Albies and all, and Acuna and all those guys. I mean, the offense is, is terrifying. So if they can continue to, get this type of pitching, I, they probably will beat the Dodgers and win the World Series. So, um, But that's a big if. If the Dodgers don't win the World Series this year, <laughs> like, I don't know. I feel bad for the Dodgers. They are just a good team, and they've been good over several years. And baseball is fluky and random. Well, yeah, but I mean, it might ultimately come down to their bullpen. And, and we always knew that was a question mark with them. And, and that's... I don't know how much more evidence we need in baseball front offices that you need to have a good bullpen if you're going to win. So yeah. it, it, their Achilles is, is, is kind of just proving to be their Achilles if they do lose. Well, so we should quickly revisit where things stand with our World Series draft. Um, Jeff, even though your your last two remaining teams cannibalized each other in the last round, your last pick is the Dodgers. So you you still have the, the team with the, the best chance to win. I somehow have the rest of the field <laughs> with the Rays, Braves, and Astros. Neil, all your teams were eliminated. I so know. so you're out of this extremely high-stakes contest. I'm so sorry. The Yankees and the A's were my last hope. I was like, am I going to have to root for the Yankees? And they <laughs> lost. So I was like, nope, I don't, I'm not going to have to do that. <laughs> well, so I'll ask you, who would you take in this scenario? The Dodgers or the field? Uh, well, I would take the field now. After the Dodgers lost game one, I mean, that's really the first resistance that the Dodgers have faced in the postseason. So I'm a little bit hesitant to read too much into it because, again, like you said, Jeff, the Braves have uh, they, they run three starters deep, even if you include the two guys that really have come out of nowhere and have pitched great in the postseason, but, you know, are definitely not um, well known. I think they're both rookies. Uh, and, and so I still think that you're going to have to get, you know, some kind of performance out of a bullpen game or, you know, some kind of fourth starter or pitch a guy on short rest or something, especially the way these AL, uh, NLCS schedules are where there's like no off days mm-hmm. uh, in between games. I just think the Dodgers depth will still give them the edge in terms of like, if it's a battle of attrition uh, and a pitching attrition. Uh, but yeah, I still I, I think that the um, the field has the edge just because 
A, the Braves do have a lead that counts for something. And the Rays look good. You know, mm-hmm. I think that uh, and, and to be honest, the Astros were looking great before uh, the ALCS and they've lost these two games by relatively small margins. They're still getting hits. They're getting on base. They're just not converting with runners in scoring positions. So I also wouldn't be surprised if the Astros storm back and we just talked about how much talent they have uh, on paper and how they might be finally turning things around. So there's compelling reasons to think why maybe one of the teams that one of Sarah's teams, I should say yeah. the teams that aren't yeah. the Dodgers uh, will win this uh, contest for her. Yeah, no, Oh, I like my I like my position here. Yeah, I, I I would take the field. For <laughs> well, I mean, we could just give. Do you guys want to trade? Yeah, no, no I'm thanks. happy to trade. <laughs> Why don't we just call it right now and give me the win? I'm fine with that. <laughs> All right, well, let's end this here, and we'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, I have the rabbit hole for you guys, and it actually is from a story. So yesterday was Columbus Day, or Indigenous Peoples Day, as more people all the time are celebrating it. And we published a piece by a writer named Hope Alchin on one of the intersections of Native Americans and sports. Keyed off of the Washington football team name and logo situation, we looked at Native mascots across the country and across all levels of sports. The Native mascots in the pros are pretty obvious. There are four remaining across MLB, the NFL, and the NHL, the Kansas City Chiefs, Cleveland Indians, Atlanta Braves, and Chicago Blackhawks. And there are two more pro teams that use Native-inspired logos or imagery. Those are the Seattle Seahawks and the Vancouver Canucks. College teams with Native mascots are an even smaller share of overall teams after the NCAA declared in 2005 that teams with hostile and abusive mascots, nicknames, or imagery that pertain to race, ethnicity, or national origin would no longer be allowed to host NCAA championship events. Nicknames with general indigenous descriptions like Indians or savages, those were out. But some slightly more vague names were allowed to remain as long as there was no native imagery included in the mascots or logos. So Bradley is still the Braves, but they adopted a non-native mascot called Kaboom the Gargoyle. And I encourage you all to Google Kaboom. He is just extremely creepy fuel of nightmares oh, i'm <laughs> looking at him right now yeah it's, it's terrible i don't i don't i don't understand they were like let's find them the weirdest thing we possibly can good job bradley so five schools were allowed to keep their specific nicknames because they had the support of a local tribe those were the catawba college catawba indians the central michigan chippewas the florida state seminoles the mississippi college choctaws and the university of utah utes Some other schools tried to fight the ban with tribal support, but couldn't quite make their case. So the University of Illinois, for example, kept its fighting Illini nickname, saying the moniker referred to the people of Illinois and not a tribe. But it was required to retire its chief Illiniwek mascot without the support of the Peoria tribe. By far, the larger number of native nicknames and mascots can be found in high schools. Using the website MascotDB, Hope found 1,232 high schools with Native American team names. That includes 411 Indians, 330 Warriors, and those are just warriors that have 
um, indigenous uh, native themed logos and mascots. 103 chiefs or chieftains, 104 braves, and still surprisingly, 45 schools that use the former name of the Washington football team. So a little about this methodology, Hope pulled Mascot DB's full list of native associated team names and logos and reviewed them all. That list was very inclusive to the point of counting mascots that could be appropriative but weren't, like a Raiders mascot, but with like a pirate themed logo. So Hope went through all of the ambiguous team names and weeded out any of them that didn't directly use native imagery. There certainly might be other high schools with indigenous imagery in their branding, but if they didn't first have a native nickname, we wouldn't have picked those up. So I double checked most of this data. Um, So some of my takeaways from going through all of the data. So a handful of these schools, from what we could tell, are actually tribal schools. In those cases, it's a much different situation. You know, students and communities are using their own imagery and traditions, and often they're reclaiming the nicknames that can be seen as slurs. So Wellpinit High School in Washington State is on the Spokane Reservation, and a majority of its students are Native American. It uses the former name of the Washington football team with pride. Incidentally, one of my favorite nicknames on this list is from a tribal school in my home state of South Dakota. They're the Pine Ridge Thorps, named after legendary Native American athlete Jim Thorpe. He was the Olympic gold medalist who also played for both the NFL and MLB in their early days. And I love that nickname. Um, I also noticed many Native nicknames in towns or school district named for tribes or Native figures. So the Mandan Braves, the Iroquois Chiefs, the Cherokee Indians. Aside from reminding me just how many places in this country are named after Indigenous people, it also made me wonder if that's maybe part of the resistance to changing these mascots. So if you live in a place called Cherokee, you're probably not looking at that as appropriation. And the name of the town and the nickname of the school then just sort of go together, right? And I I sympathize with that. But the crucial missing piece from that resistance is the unwillingness to see Native figures and imagery as reducing someone's very real heritage to a talisman. You know, it's on par with my little stuffed bird that's the Cyclones mascot. And they're they're just very different things. Finally, the number of Native mascots has fallen dramatically since the last time 538 took up an accounting like this one. In 2014, reporter Haley Mungia found approximately 1,960 high schools with Native nicknames. Now, the methodologies of the two studies were different, so it's not an apples-to-apples comparison, but still that's roughly 700 fewer Native nicknames. Haley's story listed 75 Redskins across all levels of sports, of course, including the the Washington football team. And six years later, that's down to 45. And as I was checking those 45 high schools, it was striking how many of them are rethinking the nickname now in the wake of what happened with football team. Schools like Union High School in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Emmerich Manuel High School in Indianapolis, Orsicani High School in New York, all of those are considering changing their, their nickname now. In fact, I noticed these kinds of headlines about many schools with other indigenous nicknames too, not, not just the worst of the indigenous nicknames. So I'll be really interested to check in on this again and in a year or so and see if that movement away from native mascots has continued and, and if that number continues to drop over the course of time. It does really seem like there's been, you know, a swell to a groundswell to change that, um, which I found really interesting. So yeah. Yeah, super interesting. I, I'm actually not surprised that all 45 aren't 
thinking of changing their team name. <laughs> Some are very entrenched. And... They should all be forced to adopt an equally vague and boring name. So <laughs> they should be like the Union High School High School Football Team. <laughs> I would get behind that. That would be super fun. <laughs> but I think that it it speaks to you know, for years, the the Washington football team was trying to kind of portray themselves as being like, oh, it's just a name. It's benign. Or we have the support of Native Americans or they're just not they don't care about it. But I think it shows the fact that it's already changing the the trend of other teams at lower levels shows how influential the fact that there was a team at the highest level of football that carried that name openly was the, the and the fact that they've changed it now is uh it, it was instantly going to have ripple effects down the line so that uh years from now maybe we won't have any football team uh, whatever <laughs> you know former yeah. football team names uh that that you know it wasn't just oh it's just a word that we happen to have and nobody's reading too much into it it does have meaning you know and it did have influence over how everyone else across the country was viewing that debate. And so the fact that they've changed it probably will have uh, a lot more influence than they would give themselves credit for just a few years ago when they were like digging their heels in and not changing it. Yeah. You know, in some of the, um, there are stories about, about schools having these arguments about whether to change their, their nicknames and some of the arguments in favor of keeping them are like, well, we want to keep this culture alive. This is, this is, we're honoring this culture and we're afraid that we, if we get rid of it, then kids just won't know about native history. And I was like, man, that is such an odd way of looking at it. Like we're going to keep making, making a caricature out of uh, an entire, you know, group of people and that's how we're going to keep, to honor them and keep that history alive. It's just it's interesting the way people can talk themselves into supporting something that that is a part of their identity. You know, we talk about identity politics all the time in politics, but identity politics is what everybody lives, right? We we your identity is important to you and if your identity includes going to a school that's nicknamed were the Indians and you had a guy in a headdress out at halftime. And that was a part of your high school experience. It's really hard to then go back and say, Hey, this was actually not great. Maybe this shouldn't happen anymore. It's just, it's really hard to let go of something that was part of your existence. Um, and I mean, we see that all the time in so many different contexts, but again, sports is a, is a good microcosm for the rest of the world. Um, and this is just one more way that that is, that that is playing out. So yeah, I encourage people to read the story up on the website right now. It's really fascinating. It gets into some of the research about how native nicknames is, is psychologically damaging for Native American kids. Stuff that like, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, that makes sense to me a lot. But it's a really interesting story and and some beautiful illustrations in it um, that I really I really enjoyed working on. And now I have just looked up so many high school nicknames. I feel like I know. Give me a state. I can give you a bunch of nicknames. <laughs> um, all right. So that will do it for this week's show. We will be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. If you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I treasure all of your reviews, even the one from a recent reviewer that said they were unconvinced that this group knows that much about sports accurate 
harsh but fair. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you for that review. <laughs> we will incorporate your feedback. Um, you can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. <laughs>